Hello and welcome to our podcast. My name is Claire Moffat and I'm the Head of Intermediate Development and Technical at Royal London. Today I'm delighted to be joined by three guests. Jamie Jenkins, who is our Director of Policy and External Affairs here at Royal London. Ben Wright, the Director of Strategic Development at Tenet Group. And Tim Fassam, who is the Director of Government Relations and Policy at PIMFUB. As you may know, Royal London has recently launched some new research which explores why 39 million adults in the UK currently miss out on the benefits of professional financial support. Our findings reveal there's a lot more to the advice gap than first meets the eye. Indeed, we've shown the advice gap can be broken down into four distinct populations of customers who each have different needs and face different challenges. By looking at these groups separately, we believe we can start much deeper conversation around the type of support each segment needs and who would be best placed to provide it. In this session, we're going to dig into the key findings from our research and discuss how our industry might work together to help more customers get the help they need. If you'd like to read our full research findings, you can download a copy from our website at advisor.royallondon.com forward slash fix the advice gap. The advice gap is undoubtedly one of the biggest issues we face as a nation when it comes to helping people get their finances in order. Was there anything in our research you found particularly interesting or surprising when it comes to how we define and talk about the advice gap or even understanding why so many people fall into it? First of all, Jamie. Thanks, Claire. I think the very interesting thing for me is that we've started to really break this down and understand who is in the advice gap and and for what reason really, and there are different reasons. As ever, it's much more nuanced. It's easy to talk about the advice gap and assume that that's a fairly homogenous group of people. And of course it isn't. They're all different ages and personality types and and different financial means. It reminds me a bit of actually that some of the work that that is ongoing regarding the self-employed, where we're trying to get the self-employed saving for retirement, just just as we have done with employed people through workplace pensions. And people talk about five million self-employed as if it's one large group of people in a similar position. Of course, it's not. They're all in very different types of job at different stages in their career. And this is similar, really. So it really starts to to get into the detail of that and help us understand you know, why people are, are, are in the advice gap, if they feel they're in the advice gap, and, and if so, why? And that starts to, I think, give us, give us an edge into starting to solve the problem once we understand it better. So I found that particularly interesting. Thanks, Jamie. Next, Ben? Yeah, I mean, the, the advice gap is one of those terms, you know, as, as Jamie said, it's, it's a bit of a catch-all that um, it covers a very broad range of, of people in different situations. I mean, just looking at the, the research that you guys have produced, I mean, there is a big cohort in there that think it's too expensive to, to go out and seek financial advice. And, and I think um, some of that is perception, but also, you know, we have seen with increasing regulation and um, the complexity required in giving advice that those kind of minimum levels that advisors need to, to kind of remain profitable are, are starting to go up. So there could be an argument, actually, it is too expensive for a lot of people to try and get financial advice in the current system. Um, but the other thing as well, you know, 22% of people hadn't ever thought about it. They just hadn't even thought about the concept of financial advice. And that, that's a really um, a broader education piece that we need to try and get through as a society about how important it is to, to think about um, finances and getting help with finances as you would with other things within life. So it, it is a, 
it's a really difficult difficult one to kind of cover the advice gap because there are so many people that need advice, but through whatever reason, either they're not engaging with the process or, or don't feel that they can uh, they can afford that advice process or potentially they can't afford the process. Um, it's something really, as a, as a group, we need to try and work on to try and find some kind of solution, but um, it's, it's a difficult one to try and solve, I must admit. Thanks, Ben. And same question to Tim. Um, <clears throat> I'd agree with... Um with everything that's been said and i think it is really important to recognize that when we say the advice gap what we're talking about is a whole different selection of unmet needs or potential benefits that people either can't access or don't understand are available to them uh, and having that extra level of, of granularity is really useful in terms of, of solving that and and it's something we at PIMFA uh, we did a report earlier in the year on improving uh, the advice market and well, that was one of the things we tried to recognize was that there was a range of options and solutions that would help different people and close this this overall gap i think the other thing that struck me um and i think is worth our industry thinking about a bit is we talk about investable assets so uh, throughout the research and the way people think about it do i have enough money to get advice and so we're now thinking about advice very much as managing wealth that people already have and actually we need to think about how we can help people build that wealth in the first place because there will be a whole selection of people that perhaps have reasonable incomes but haven't so far been able to build up very much in the way of assets and they can potentially benefit from advice just as much so i think that uh, getting that balance between uh, level of assets and and the potential uh, for assets in the future is really important. Thanks, Tim. So let's go on to think about assets in a little more detail. And the FCA has recently suggested that customers who have assets of around ten thousand pounds would benefit from some form of financial help. However, our research shows that many advice firms would turn a potential client away unless they had closer to £50,000 to invest. In fact, 20% of the firms we spoke to said customers would need as much as £100,000 before their firm would take them on as a client. Despite the fact that there are millions of people who fall into this group and, and are open to receiving professional financial help, many advice firms will feel that it simply isn't economical to support customers who have lower levels of investable assets. So what can our industry and our regulators be doing to help change that? I'll um, ask you that question first of all, Tim. Um, yeah, and this is, this is one of the really important questions here. And I think there's two elements to it. One is, you know, what can individuals with lower amounts say, what help could be available to them? And then the second is, why is it that uh, many firms are requiring that much to invest? So on the first, I think one of the things we've recognized at, at PIMFA is actually there are, there is a group of people for whom full professional financial advice isn't the right answer. And we've been very supportive of the money and pension service and government guidance and we need to do what we can to make sure that guidance is available for people on on lower incomes lower amounts of saving who um, need a bit of help and and aren't going to be able to afford to, to pay for it we've then looked at uh, how we can increase access to simplified advice through clarifying the um the, the regulations 
uh, uh, that, that would enable it to be easier to offer a, a service with with a kind of lower degree of liability that something is absolutely the best for that individual to think for that individual to do on the other side we've ended up with a scenario where um, full professional financial advice is an absolute gold standard platinum standard product um, that is phenomenally valuable because of the level of, of effort and detail and professionalism that's delivered by but that is inherently expensive um, we have a regulatory burden and a set of regulatory costs including fees um, like the FSCS and others um, that mean that it is very expensive to provide that that full advice and with a, a kind of proportional fee firms need that uh, th those high level of assets to make that work so in terms of finding a solution we need to look at both those how we can provide better guidance simplified advice and simplified advice an area where some PIMFA members are are interested in providing something more um, mass market potentially driven by technology and making sure we're not adding unnecessary cost into the advice process and if you go back to the financial advice market review one of its conclusions was they were very limited in what government could do because they had to stick to the definition of advice within MIFID. Having left the EU, that's no longer a restriction. So I think there is a real opportunity for regulators to look again at how they can make sure we can deliver this high quality product without those unnecessary costs and, and difficulties. Thanks, Tim. And same question to you, Ben. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, the, the, the stats that you suggested there, so, you know, kind of 50,000 or even 100,000 to invest before um, a firm takes a client on are prob probably quite accurate. Um, certainly within our network, I would suggest that um, it's probably towards the higher end of that before it becomes viable for one of our guys to take somebody on. And, and something that we're trying to push at the moment is to think about how we can help advisors use technology to make things more efficient. Because I, I think it is all, all down to the efficiency of the process. Um, and, you know, Technology is getting better all of the time. Um, I think that um, from what we've seen in the robo space, ro robo isn't widely taken up. And uh, certainly from my conversations with, with a number of providers in that space, it tends to be that clients hover around, they look at things for a long period of time, but then don't press the final button to actually kind of confirm. And actually where, where these guys have a kick out to a telephone service, that's where you get most of the conversions. So I think people still want to talk to people as part of this process. And I think in, in the very short term, Robo is probably not going to solve this problem on, on its own. Um, but I, I did hear a fantastic term um, a few days ago of, uh, of cobot. So th this is actually a, a term used in robotics. So a, a robot is a, you know, something that goes off autonomously and, and does its business. A cobot is something that's designed to work in an environment with humans. So I, I do wonder whether, whether the most efficient way of doing this could be, rather than having robo-advice, we could have cobo-advice. Some, something which is a hybrid of, of the two uh, together, a combination of automated and, and human intervention as well. And we, we're starting to see a few of those products out there, but it really is going to come down to, to economies of scale to make sure that, that we can do this. Um, and you know, and, and uh, as has been said previously, kind of the, the, the burden of how much detail you have to go into to provide advice, I think, is, is a blocker. Because, you know, if you think practically, giving advice on £100 a month regular contribution into an investment or in £50 a month into an investment is probably a similar amount of effort to invest in two, three £300,000 in terms of paperwork and time frame. So, 
we need to find a quicker way of doing that. And, and it could be that actually, you know, we can use technology uh, to become uh, almost uh, have like an incubator for advisors. So for, for newer customers or for younger customers, maybe they'll come in on some form of uh, more robotics or more guidance-based approach. And then as their savings build, they start to kind of move more into the kind of traditional advice space. But I, I think it's going to be all about technology. Brilliant. Thank you. And Jamie, what role can providers play in all of this? Well, Ben and Tim make some really interesting points and, and, and I would certainly concur with that. It feels like there's a, a journey we need to take people on, we need to take customers on because they don't start life needing advice necessarily. Most people don't. And some of the nudges that we can use to get people into the savings habit you know, will work very well as a starter. But there is something about how that need for advice generally speaking, grows or indeed can can be sprung upon someone um, through different life events as, as, they, as they get older. So there is something about taking people on a journey. Perhaps there is something about planting the seed earlier that advice is something to think about for the future rather than just, you know, what we've done really as an industry up until this point is we've, we've got literature that just says, you know, if you need advice, speak to a financial advisor. And that's not really doing anything to get people engaged or interested in that as a concept. We need to have more conversations about how you might not need advice now, but it's something you might want to think about for the future. And wouldn't it be a good problem to have that you had significant assets at a later point that you needed advice and you could merit um, paying more for advice because you could get somebody to, to help you with that. So there is something in there. I think absolutely right about, you know, data and technology. There's, there's more that providers can do and are doing in some cases to, to try and help, you know, start that advice process by reusing the data that we hold and building that data and sharing that data. I think just a final point on this, um, we, we haven't mentioned it, but I think one of the inherent costs I know for an advisor is the levies and fees that they pay, whether that's PI for, you know, the types of business that they do, which is one thing, or as pretty much all provider uh, advisors have to pay FSCS levies, which we we know are at a, you know, really an all-time high. And a lot of that is driven by other things that other people do within the industry and problems that have occurred through, you know, lack of foresight or, or lack of good governance. So we need to work harder, I think, collectively on that to try and make sure that we're not, you know, people aren't paying half their advisor fees for the levies the advisor has to pay. We need to help advisors get those fees down by doing better things and, and stopping problems before they happen, I think. Thanks, Jamie. So let's focus on the advice gap in a little bit more detail. As I said earlier, through our latest research, we've been able to break the full breadth of the advice gap down into four distinct customer segments. And we believe if our industry can build solutions to match the needs of each particular group, we have a much better chance of connecting more people with the financial help that they need. So looking at each of these segments, the customers who fall into the disengaged gap and the guidance gap are generally younger, with lower levels of personal wealth and financial knowledge. They are, however, the most likely to feel unprepared to cope with a life shock. Tim, what can our industry be doing to help these people plan and feel better prepared for the future? Um, absolutely. I mean, these are, are critical individuals. And most importantly, the, this is the future of the industry. I mean, if we don't um, help these these individuals, particularly 
uh, in the, the sort of 25 to 35 mark and the 35 to 45, that, you know, we're going to limit our future client base. Um, so getting this right is, is critical. And I think there's a few things that can be, be done um, that are linked with understanding kind of how these people uh, build up assets and, and how they, they interact with the world around them. And, and going back to previous points, technology is going to be absolutely critical. These are, are a generation that are used to doing things um, on technology, on app and web-based um, don't necessarily have a huge amount of human interaction or have experienced things that are, are similar to the advice process before. So making sure we have um, ways of engaging that are um, relevant to this group are critical. I think that is a really important part of recognizing what the industry can and can't do and supporting what we can't do. So supporting things like the money and pension service to provide um, guidance for individuals that are not able to access the market but working with those guidance providers to ensure there are appropriate handoffs and ways for them to engage with sales processes so that either when they get to the point of um, wanting say an execution only transaction or getting to the point where they need advice it's really easy and simple for them to do so. And there's two other things I think that are important to recognize, which is about how they build up, how these age groups and these brackets are likely to build up wealth. One is automatic enrollment pensions. I mean, these this is the key demographic for auto enrollment. So these people may build up relatively large amounts of money compared to the national average without engaging at all. Um, and so there is going to be a, pro, a point at which um, they have uh, significant sums of money and they will want some help and support. Perhaps they'll have multiple pots. And so helping them transition from a disengaged state to an engaged state uh, and what that might mean in terms of, of the opportunities is really important. And the other, the final one is intergenerational because we're now looking at a scenario where if care costs don't uh, eat away at inheritance, um, potentially for, for many people, over 50% of their lifetime income will now come from inheritance due to uh, high uh, parental house prices. And so making sure advisors are looking at intergenerational wealth transfers and how you bring those younger generations into the relationships you have with existing clients will be really critical because some of those that are disengaged or in the guidance gap may suddenly find themselves inheriting hundreds of thousands of pounds and you want to make sure you've got a good relationship with them already if at all possible. Thanks Tim. Jamie, the FCA is currently consulting on whether pension providers should implement stronger nudges that would encourage pension savers to make an appointment with PensionWise. Now, one of their key proposals is to put a cooling off period in place before a customer could access their pension savings if they've chosen to opt out of guidance. Do you think that would help? And if not, what can we be doing to encourage more customers to seek guidance? So getting... Um people engaged with guidance is one of our key challenges and everybody recognizes that and I think everybody agrees that guidance is a good thing um, and you know even those who those who use it value it and find it helpful I don't think there's any question about that 
I do think, though, we, we need to find a balance here. So the objective isn't just to sort of force people into guidance and then feel that that's a great success if we if we achieve it. I think we need to you know, people need to, to want guidance. They need to feel that it's something valuable um, that they want to go and do rather than they, they're forced to do. And I think there's a balance to find here. We, we you know we started a few years ago with freedom and choice at retirement, um, particularly so giving people access to to do what they need to do or want to do with their money. If we then start putting what might be perceived as barriers in the way of that, where people think, well, I know exactly what I want to do, but I'm now being told I need to wait through this cooling off period, or I'm being told that I must go and get guidance before I can uh, undertake any sort of decision, then we run the risk that people start to, to feel that that's prohibitive, and even that you know they're being told they can't access the money in the way that they, they were promised um, back in, in the days of freedom and choice. So. I think we need to, to, to think more carefully about it. The objective isn't to get people taking guidance, it's to get people interested and find guidance valuable and therefore it's something they want to do rather than they feel forced to do. Now I'm not saying that's easy and I don't, I don't have a magic bullet as to how we do that but I think we need to talk it up a bit more rather than just talk about it factually and try and signpost it and put in place various nudges. I think we need to talk a bit more about why it's such a good thing, especially when it's um, when it's free of charge and, and can be delivered, you know, entirely independently. So I think that there's more we can do, but I, I, I'm not sure that um, cooling off periods is the right way to go about it. I think if, if I, I could just jump in there in a second, I, I, I would probably agree. I, I don't think cooling off periods are, are probably the, the way to kind of solve this, this issue as well. I, I wonder whether the, the root at the roots of this is financial education when people are young. Um, that would make the biggest amount of difference. And I know it will take a while to kind of filter through society, but, you know, if we can look at the, the program of education within the school system to make sure that kids understand that it's good to plan ahead, it's good to save, you know, think about the future, um, and really invest in that, I think that will probably pay, pay more dividends over the longer term. Um, I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about money and pension service a couple of times, and they've put out some stats recently that said uh, less than, um, sorry, 22% of the population have less than £100 in savings. I mean, that, that for me just sounds uh, unbelievable, and, and, it, and it clearly shows that we need to think about that kind of culture of savings over time. And um, if through education in schools, potentially through um, more workplace savings plans, I think workplace savings can, can form a, a really important part of that. And, Things like kind of save the change. I know some of the uh, the banks are now doing kind of save the change as part of their apps. I wonder whether we can invest the change, because actually if, if we invest the change, investments will grow over a period of time. And just getting to that mindset of save on a continual basis will help people get out of out of that cycle. Um, I mean, Tim talked before about inheritance and, and people inheriting wealth, and I think that uh, yeah, that's certainly an important thing. And, and a lot of uh, the advisors in our network do do a lot of intergenerational planning as, as part of their. Uh, normal process, but I think a lot of people in the advice gap won't inherit a huge amount of money. You know, they're they're, they're from uh, maybe poorer demographics, those that, that don't have um, an inbuilt kind of culture of saving or investing within the family. So I, I'm not sure that that the inheritance thing again will, will solve their financial problems. And I, I do think we need to go back to that regular encouragement of saving um, all of the time, constantly throughout workplace savings, throughout kind of save the change apps, throughout. Pension savings, auto-enrollment is great. I think it's um, if people rely on that solely, it's not enough. And people will get to retirement thinking, well, I've been in a pension my entire life and realize they don't have enough cash. So, again, there's an education piece around how much to put in there. But I do wonder whether whether the school system is where we need to start on all this. 
And I think certainly that most people would agree that financial education is key, just, you know, encouraging that's even for the future and just thinking about it as it's a bank account for the future, isn't it? You use your bank account now, what are you going to use um, in retirement? So we've thought about um, those first two groups, but now I want to have a think about the customers who fall into the self-sufficient gap. Now, they generally have the most money to invest, but they also feel the most confident when it comes to looking after their finances. Now, this gap has the largest population of older customers who are also the most likely not to trust advisors. So for those who have a negative impression of the professional advice market, possibly driven by historical scandals, how can we reset their thinking on the professional advice market and the huge value advisors can add? And I'll ask that question to all three guests, but first of all, Ben. Thank you. Um, I think we're, 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 we're a little bit um, uh, in danger of thinking of the skeletons of the past being defining our future here. And, and you know, there has been some scandals, uh, we, we've all seen them, um, but on the whole, I think it's important that we try and get that message out that financial advice is a wonderful thing and, and can add real value uh, to people's well-being over, over a period, of, uh, financial well-being over a period of time. Um, I mean, Vanguard recently produced some statistics that suggested uh, have a percentage gain of somebody's overall investment portfolio as a result of advice. And I think it's, it's through that education piece we can really suggest the value of advice uh, that, that can play to individuals. The, the problem we're always going to have is that um, the, the stories you hear about are the ones that hit the press. And the, what the press want to do is sell stories. So they'll, they'll print the ones which kind of get the most immediate shock horror responses. And you don't see the stories about all the good things that happen. So maybe what we need to do between providers and, and advisors themselves is push out more positive stories about actual customer interactions and how they felt the benefit of things. Um, I'm sure that there are a, a huge number of stories out there. And, some of, some of our advisors, certainly, um, who, um, who focus on probably more on the cash flow modeling side of things, regularly work on that basis. And, you know, they're such an integral part of their, their client's life. Uh, you know, the, the client phones the advisor and says, you know, I want to buy a new car. Is that okay? And the advisor says, hang on a second, looks at the cash flow model and says, yeah, it's fine. Off you go and buy your car. So it, it really is an integral part of, of their, their kind of financial position. And I think we just need to try and push out those good stories to try and counteract the, the few kind of, bad stories that we have floating around. Thanks, Ben. And now over to Tom. I, I'd agree with, uh, with, with, with everything Ben said. I think the other aspect that's really important to help build trust in our industry is to deal with the, you know, the essentially out-and-out -out criminals that are bringing the industry into disrepute. And these aren't mainstream financial advice firms they're the scammers and um, we've been doing a huge amount of work um, on things like the online safety bill to try and get people like google facebook um, the social media firm search platforms to take uh fraudulent adverts to deal with um frauds uh impersonation frauds to deal with uh fake news articles um, which in, end up with people losing an enormous amount of money. Um, and uh, that is seen wrongly, completely wrongly, as being part of our, our industry. The other aspect is getting supervision right, uh, particularly uh, after things like LCF and the mini bond scandals, uh, making sure we've been working very carefully with and closely with the Treasury and the FCA to get these high-risk investment products 
uh, properly regulated and properly restricted so that again we're not ending up in a scenario where people are losing large sums of money because they think they've dealt with a financial advisor or engaged with our industry when in fact they they have fallen victim to to a fraudster and i think we've got to deal with that to enable people to feel uh, that they can trust the rest of the sector who are you know as ben says incredibly professional professional now offering a really high quality product i think your own research showing um, that potentially can benefit individuals up to you know forty-seven thousand pounds um far more than than most people could earn in a year so um as well as making sure we're out there building trust and ensuring people understand that benefit um dealing with those fraudsters dealing with those bad apples those those high risk products is absolutely critical to rebuilding trust thanks tim and jamie have you got anything else to add yeah i think some interesting points there i mean it's it's interesting how we've got a society where people are in the main quite willing to pay for good professional but very transactional services through solicitors and estate agents for you know buying houses of you know of similar magnitude in terms of the amount of money they might pay and these you know they're, they're all doing a, a great job but they're not necessarily saving money and it's almost like that bit is a bit lost when you start talking about financial advisors and they are actually potentially saving you quite substantial sums of money rather than simply costing money and i think there are there are a lot of, kind of myths around that as to what financial advisors really do and, and you know i think T tim's absolutely right as well that we've got a bunch of bad apples in all of this um you know there's no denying that and there are an awful lot of people who um as technology has enabled them to do um running all sorts of high-risk investment scams now which are not all illegal but they're highly inappropriate for many people and it's not helping at all so there's something again i don't think it's good enough just to say well look check the fca register and so on i don't think we 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 should just leave it to customers to to sort of do that due diligence i think we need to educate customers on what to look for and what the what the real warning signs are for things that aren't appropriate um, and we do you know we are doing that but it's uh, i think we've got more work to do in that area thanks jamie now, those customers who fall into the professional advice gap represent the biggest immediate opportunity for advisors. Not only are these customers among the most affluent, more than half say they're open to receiving professional financial help, and that equates to around 3.9 million customers. Ben, with such significant and potentially profitable opportunities out there, what do you think advisors can be doing to reach more of these customers? And is there anything the industry can be doing to help? Um, I think that we, we're, we're probably coming to a place in our industry where um, we're going to start to see soon a, a shortage of advisors to actually look at servicing uh, customers. I mean, we are seeing the number of advisors drop uh, year on year. And um, I think if you look at a, num a number of uh, firms now, they're, they're not really looking to take on new clients. They're happy with the clients that they've currently got. Now, you, you could argue that's a little bit short-sighted and that, you know, clients will... Um, uh, pass on and you know wealth will pass down generations but um, I think that we, we do have a, a big issue uh, to try and sort out as an industry of where new talent will come from um, and I think um, we, we need to really address that sooner rather than later to try and help service the, the amount of clients that are out there wanting advice and if, if you combine 
you know, more advisors be able to provide advice with technology uh, that will be able to help um, provide that advice as well in a more efficient way. That's the way we, we're going to go towards addressing this particular gap in the marketplace. Um, you know, if, if people are open for advice, maybe they just need a nudge towards it. But um, if they are willing to engage, then we do need to have people there who can actually provide that advice, that advisors there to do so, and the technology to back them up and, and, and help them do that. Okay, thank you. Um, now, moving on to think about barriers to advice, our research has also shown that regardless of which advice gap customers fall into, there are six key barriers which stop people from seeking professional financial help. Now, most of these barriers are mainly driven by widespread customer confusion around what advisors do and the value they can add. Now, what steps do we need to take in order to change that? I'd like to ask that question to everyone, um, starting with Tim. Um, I mean, this is this is what really critical to get right at, at this point. So I think um, we need to ensure that that we've got that clarity about um, particularly the advice guidance boundary, what each service does, so people can be really clear about what it is they're going to going to get. That we can be really clear about. Um, the value that um, people uh, people get and can get, and that people recognise the the risks that they're um, trying to manage if they're looking after their own their own money, and this is going to mean a few things. One is is just making sure we are communicating as an industry really clearly what our purpose is, what value we can add. I think it's in our interest to really encourage people to use um, the guidance of the money and pension service uh, and the, the, the guide, government guidance that's available because that will get them used to engaging in that process, get used to them to asking for, for help. Uh, and I know that's one of the recommendations of, of your report. And then I think it's really critical we make these handover points as smooth as possible and as easy as possible. So moving from guidance to advice, uh, moving from the uh, auto your auto enrolled pension where you've disengaged to engaging at the point of retirement, um, that we make these really smooth. And one thing we haven't talked about that will be helpful, I think, in time is the pensions dashboard, which will make it as easy as possible for people to understand what they've got uh, and then be able to help them understand what, what uh, they could have uh, with the right uh, advice and, and guidance. Um, and I think working with the uh, the government and with the uh, regulator to make sure that this is encouraged. One of the recommendations PIMFA made um, uh, on the recent consultation on, on the structure of the regulator was to move from an objective from the FCA for consumer protection, where they tend to interpret a customer who's done nothing as being protected, um, to one where they have to promote good consumer outcomes um, and we would see one of the good consumer outcomes we would like the regulator to to work with us on is access to advice and guidance and i think if we're all pulling in the same direction that would really help brilliant and same question to jamie yeah i would, uh, would agree with much of that i think i mentioned before that, that that it feels like we need to take people on a journey one which starts with information that 
education at an early age, as uh, I think I think Ben and Tim have, have both mentioned, but takes you through to guidance as you start to save, along with nudges to help you save and start building up some kind of assets and indeed protecting your, your finances along the way. And then leads to a, a position of, of advice, not as a cliff edge where, you know, it's kind of free all the way up to a point and then suddenly it's very expensive, but more, you know, how can we manage that transition where people start to feel, actually, I do, you know, I do need to start thinking about how I pay for this because I can save more now that I have more significant assets and I have more complex affairs, you know, but we want them to, to, to sort of gently get into that mindset rather than suddenly feel that they're faced with a big bill for advice and I think that, I think that will really help so taking people on a journey is uh, to me is probably the biggest thing it's a bit tricky though that you know we can't go back and take everybody on a journey who's who's already reached a point later in life where for some reason they don't trust advice so there's there's, there's also a number of educational things I think we need to do around uh, myth busting and what advisors, good advisors, actually do and how they help people. Thanks, Jimmy. And Ben, do you have anything to add? I think, um, I, I, and I agree. I, I agree with with all the comments so far. I think it, it is um, there is that kind of education up front, but we can't forget about the population who are already kind of way past school age and you know in, into later life now, and and that's a, a separate education piece. Which you know, organisations like the Money and Pension Service are doing a great job to try and help. Uh, help educate uh, or help provide the education uh, out there for people. I mean, one for me, one of the, one of the key things uh, from your topics was um, I don't like to talk about money. And I think as a society, that, that's one of the things which um, is really historic in, in British society. Anyway, people don't talk about money. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, it's a bit taboo to, to have a conversation around. And trying to break that taboo could well be a, an important step in getting people to engage with the process because, you know, talking to a, a financial advisor is, is really, you know, you're revealing a lot of information. You're kind of laying it all out on the table and having a real kind of detailed chat about money, whereas it can be perceived that that's just not, not the right thing to do. It's just kind of not cricket in English society. Um, and, you know, that we have seen some kind of push forward with that. There was a, a Talk Money uh, campaign for money and pensions. Uh, which I think has, has gone somewhere in there. But again, that education piece to say it, it, it's okay to talk about money. You know, don't hold it up, don't bottle it up inside. Um, seek guidance, whether it is from someone uh, like a government body, whether it's from a financial advisor, but it is okay to talk about it. Great. Thanks very much, Ben. Within the research, Royal London have outlined some key areas of focus, which it believes will help to solve some of the problems that we've spoken about today. Now, these include doing more to promote the free guidance services, improving the financial education at grassroots, which was spoken about, and helping advisors to scale up their services. Would you agree with these particular areas? And is there anything else that we've perhaps not covered that you think our industry could be doing to help more customers enjoy better financial outcomes and experiences? Um, and that question's to everyone, but starting with Ben. I mean, we, we, we've probably covered quite a bit of this already. I think free guidance is, is, is really important. Um, we've talked about education at a grassroots level. Um, and I think um, it, it's all around just making sure people understand um, what's out there, what's available, and, and how important it is to engage with the process. And whether engaging with the process is, you know, receiving traditional financial advice, whether it's some kind of robo-process, or whether it is a, you know, save the change app uh, as part of your banking app. Um, I, I just think it's, it's really important that we keep the message out there, we keep kind of flying the flag there, talking about money, talking about finances and, and thinking about 
how you can influence your financial future is something we should really just promote to all at all times. Thanks, Ben. Jamie? Yeah, I think I think there's something about, I mean, I agree with Ben entirely, I think there's something about normalising the discussion about guidance and advice in a way that, you know, I was thinking uh, with some of the earlier comments that were made about how we think about other things, you know, people perhaps with advisors, they don't want to speak about their money and there's a stigma or a taboo around that. But equally, you've got other things in life, you know, you, you do speak to your doctor about your health or your dentist about your teeth or you know, there's other things which are generally accepted, but there isn't this kind of acceptance that you should go and speak to an advisor about your money, or at least speak to somebody and get some guidance about your money. And you know, perhaps it would help break down some of these uh, taboos, if you like. So we're not asking people to go out and tell all their friends about their money problems necessarily, but we are asking that they speak to somebody who can, who is independent, who can help them. And I think there is something about almost normalising that as a service that people utilise um, in their lives, um, and, and it does play to all these points about early education and, you know, um, improving access to to free guidance and indeed helping advisors to scale up and therefore you know make it more accessible for people in, in later life to get advice. So a number of things, but uh, yeah, some good points made. Thanks, Jamie. And it is interesting that actually though talking to friends about doing things like going to see a financial advisor might be helpful. You don't have to talk about the money aspect, but sometimes it's just that normalising that that's something that you would do, isn't it? We talk about other things with our friends. Um, and uh, lastly, Tim? I mean, we would, uh, Pimfa, completely agree with with all of the recommendations in, in your report and, you know, very, very supportive of, of these, promoting the guidance services um, scaling up, and particularly, I think, uh, the industry embracing technology. You know, the the cobot idea that Ben was talking about. We've talked about uh, it's possibly slightly more melodramatically cyborg advice. How you use technology to make yourself more efficient uh, as a financial advisor to reduce cost, increase scale. And we, you know, absolutely right. We've got to demystify. Uh, and improve financial education and with both of those uh, as Jamie says really normalize asking for help there's been some fantastic campaigns on um, on mental health uh, for example around um, normalizing uh, asking for help ensuring that there's no no shame or worry given that the connection quite often between um, money worries and, and mental health concerns um, really critical that we normalise asking for financial guidance and, and financial advice. And then one for, for bodies like PIMFA, just to make sure we're really working with the regulators very closely to ensure that we've got the right definition of advice, the right balance between a regulatory system that, uh, that, that ensures a really high quality product in, in advice without unnecessary cost, difficulty or unintended consequences. And, and we'll keep doing that. Thanks, Tim. Now, finally, the overriding message within the research is that the industry must work together if we're ever to fix the advice gap. How would you summarise the key risks if we don't make it easier for customers to access the financial help they need whenever they need it? First of all, Jamie. Well, I think you only need to look at the problems we face today already, where, you know, um, it was mentioned earlier that the, the millions of people who don't have £100 in the bank people who um, weren't the lucky baby boomers with DB plans who 
didn't benefit from auto enrolment all those years and are approaching retirement with very little in terms of pensions. There are some very significant problems financially in society and in terms of financial resilience already and we've seen that exacerbated of course over the last 12 months through the um, the tragedy of the pandemic if you like which has hurt so many people um, in so many ways financially and you know and emotionally so i think you only need to look at that and say well if we allow that to continue and people don't get guidance and don't get advice and we ally that with an aging society increasing number of people um, out of work and into retirement if they're poorly prepared financially, then it's it's bad for those people and their families, but it's also very bad for the economy, and it's not a good way to to, to balance the economy if we have huge numbers of people who need the state's help um, because we haven't got them thinking um, and preparing um, financially through guidance and advice. So the problems are quite dramatic. They're quite profound, I think, if we don't fix this. We need to work quite hard at it um, if we're going to make it better. Thanks, Jamie. Same question for Tim. I'd agree with Jamie. I mean, this is if um, people aren't prepared for the future, the cost will inevitably fall on on the government. And uh, even if the support isn't there uh, right now, people will, will sort of you know vote for enhanced uh, support and change and things going forward. But it will also you know it's it's important. One of the things we talk about a lot with the FSCS is um, where you know, actually, that has a lot of cost for, for advisor firms on the levy, but it's more important to remember that every customer that's fallen onto the FSCS has had a personal tragedy. And actually, if these individuals can't prepare for the future, are, are suffering in retirement, that is a huge personal tragedy. And, and actually, the benefits of financial advice, and I think we talked about this a lot on the last uh, podcast I was involved with, are not just about people's financial um, well-being. It's about their their personal well-being, their mental health. And um, that's a, you know, a real personal tragedy on top of all of the, the sort of government regulatory industry issues. Um, that people are missing out on on those benefits. Thanks, Tim. And finally, Ben. Yeah, so I think the the, the comments around financial resilience are are, are probably really important in this one. Um, I mean, we we have I think a, an inbuilt urge as, as as human beings to you know want jam today and not put it off until tomorrow. Um, and there is a, a very real danger that uh, without proper education and without kind of working with an advisor or through a guidance program that, you know, we go around our lives happily, you know, buying the things we want, having the holidays, going out for meals. And then, you know, when you do get to a point where you're thinking about, ah, I should probably wind down now, you're just not, not in a prepared position. Or indeed, if, you know, some kind of tragedy hits beforehand, um, you know, the pandemic has, has obviously shown um, the effect it can have on people's earnings and, and wages. Something like that happens, people aren't prepared you know, it can have a devastating effect on their life and, you know, as, as we were saying, kind of mental health as well. Um, we, we've talked, I think, a, a lot on this podcast around um, kind of investing and, and saving, but there's also the idea around protecting as well. And, and, you know, protection is one of those products which is generally sold rather than bought. Um, and, you know, if we don't engage with people to, to outline the value of protection, it could be that when disaster strikes in their own personal life that, you know, things are a lot worse than they could have been. Um, so for me, you know, there is that, that huge danger of just sleep, sleepwalking through 
through life to a point which is not great for them individually or you know for us on a whole as society as, as more government support is required thanks ben and that brings us to the end of today's podcast and i'd just like to thank my guests for their time today and once again if you're interested in reading more about this research please visit our website at advisor.royallondon.com forward slash fix the advice gap <laughs>